Let's pray together. Father, we come before you, um, attentive to the ways in which you're speaking to us. We seek to come before your word as it is living and two-edged. We ask that uh, it would do a work in us today as we come before you with humility. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, friends, just one thing, if, if it would be better to turn the volume up, somebody please feel free to go ahead and do that. Uh, but if you can hear me, great. Um, so one of the things I just wanted to begin by saying is one of the things that I have appreciated personally about going through the Psalms of Ascent, which we've been doing for a while now, is their very honest depiction of the Christian life. So they're not selling us this sort of sugar-coated version of Christianity where, you know, everything, if you follow Jesus, then everything's just going to be fine, everything's going to be okay, everything's going to be smooth from that moment on. Instead, the Psalms of Ascent are giving us an honest depiction of the life of faith, of faith. They're telling us that God is with us, that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he is our ever-present help in times of trouble, but that also implies that there's going to be trouble. There's still going to be challenges that we face. There's still going to be difficulties that we have to deal with. Therefore, perseverance is required. Perseverance is necessary in the life of faith. And that's what I think is at the heart of Psalm 129. It's all about perseverance, continuing to move forward on this pilgrimage of faith, even in the midst of the various challenges that we face. And Psalm 129 does this uh, by sort of showing us three specific things that we must do in order to persevere on this journey of faith. Number one, we must face reality, so we can't run and hide from it. Number two, we must despise sin. And number three, we must place our confidence in God. And so I want us to look at each one of those today. So first, Psalm 129 invites, invites us to face reality. The words of Psalm 29, 129 begin this way. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. There's no easing into the situation. This isn't sort of the Acts form of prayer that you might have been taught, where you start with adoration, then you move on to confession, then you go to thanksgiving, then it's supplication. No, it jumps right into it. The psalmist jumps in with this, this honest expression of what's really going on. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. This is what it feels like to be the people of God right now, is what the psalmist is saying. This is the reality that they and God's that the psalmist and God's people are facing right now. They're facing serious adversity and affliction. And we can understand that as well. Our, we have brothers and sisters all over the world who are facing serious adversity and affliction. And we are in our own ways as well. And so you have to be able to name reality first and foremost when you face adversity. Otherwise, the danger is that you fall into fantasy. And that's what we saw in Numbers 11 this morning. In Numbers 11, God's people had been wandering the desert for a couple of years at this point. They are tired, they're hungry, they're exhausted, their feet are sore, and most obviously in the passage, they're just so sick of eating manna. Numbers 11, 6 says, but now look at our, now look our, now, but now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. They can't even bring themselves to eat it anymore. They're just looking at it. They're looking at it. And they're so sick of it. They can't even bring themselves to eat it anymore. And I want to say, of course, that this is understandable. The state of exhaustion, the state of frustration. Um, 
it's understandable, but then they begin to daydream. And they begin to daydream about all the good things that they're missing from Egypt. We remember the fish that that we ate in verse five, it says. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. You can just imagine their, their mouth starting to water as they're imagining all these things. All of this is understandable, but where it falls into fantasy is where it says in verse five, we remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. Did the fish in Egypt cost them nothing? Absolutely not. It cost them their freedom. It cost them their dignity. It cost them their lives and the lives of their children. It cost more than we have ever paid for food before. But that's one of the dangers that we deal with when we, when we face adversity. We're tempted to retreat into fantasy and either rewrite the past, reimagine it as this wonderful, glorious thing, or we can start to daydream about a future that we want for ourselves and we live in that, uh, in that place, in that daydream. But either way, it takes us off the path of discipleship because it's not facing the current reality that we're actually in, which is where God is calling us to live faithfully right now. So when we face adversity, We must persevere. We must face reality. We cannot escape into a past past glories or a future imaginings. You have to actually face it first and foremost. Secondly, perseverant faith requires a despising of sin. The ability to see sin for what it is and to name it, to not whitewash it, to not make excuses for it. And yet not fall prey to it ourselves. That's the important part. And we see this in verses 5 through 8 of Psalm 129. It says, may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. The psalmist is incensed by the idea of people mistaking evil for good and calling down God's blessing upon the oppressors. There needs to be this clear line between right and wrong, good and evil, righteousness and wickedness. We are called to despise sin. That's why Jesus said, if if you cause somebody to sin, it's better for a millstone to be tied around your neck. He said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. These are obviously hyperbolic statements, but the point remains, we are to despise sin, to turn wholeheartedly from anything that hurts us and other people. We are to despise anything that seeks to destroy and degrade the image of God in others. We are to despise anything that works against the will of God. If we are to walk the road of faith with perseverance, then we need to both be clear-eyed about the dangers of sin and the destruction that it causes, but not fall prey to it ourselves. And there are dangers I want to suggest on both sides. On one side, you can fall prey to the temptation of apathy, where you just stop caring about God and his world and the people in it. So we become apathetic to the sin and the degradations that we see around us. On the other side, we can fall prey to sin ourselves uh, by hating sin so much that we, we become violent ourselves. We become violent and sinful. 
And so the thing that we want to destroy ends up destroying us because hatred takes root in our own hearts. And as I was thinking about all of this, uh, when I think about perseverance generally, but also when I think about specifically um, being able to name sin without falling uh, prey to either apathy on one side or violence on the other, um, the thing that I think of is Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail, which I read again this week, and I would encourage everybody to read uh, either for the first time or again if you haven't read it. And in it, he lays out in no uncertain terms the deplorableness of the sin of racism. And I'm going to read a long quote to you because I think it's important to hear it. He says, we, we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every African-American with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always been never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long de delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. Perhaps it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters. When you see the vast majority of your 20 million African-American brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society. When you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that she has just seen advertised on television and see the tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children, and see ominous clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky, and see her becoming, beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness towards white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you have to take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are, hum are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored. When you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are an African-American living constantly on tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next and are plagued with interferes and outer resentments when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. Dr. King is crystal clear about the deplorableness of sin. Then he says this. He says, we and others have to take action. We cannot be apathetic. And here's why. Because human progress never rolls on wheels of inevitability. We can't just wait. It comes through the tireless efforts of men and women willing to be co-workers with God, he said. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. We must use time creatively 
in the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do right. We can't wait. We cannot be apathetic. We must act, he says. But that action must be nonviolent so that true redemption can come, not further sin. Dr. King says this. We engage in nonviolent direct action in order to bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. We bring it out in the open where it can be seen and dealt with like a boil that can never be cured so long as it is covered up but must be opened with all its ugliness, the natural medicines of air and light. Injustice must be exposed before it can be cured. The goal is curing it. Earlier in the letter, he had said that we're not looking for a negative peace. Negative peace is the absence of protest. It's still where the sin of, of racism still exists, but nobody's complaining about it. Nobody's protesting. That's negative peace. That's not real peace. Real peace actually comes when you bring it to the surface where repentance and reconciliation can actually happen. That was the peace that Dr. King was after, and that's the true peace of the gospel. And he knew that you could not use the weapons of violence in order to achieve that real peace. So, following the example of Jesus, he showed us the road of despising sin, just like Jesus did, while not falling prey to apathy on one side or sin on the other, the same way that God was not apathetic to sin, but sent his own son as a ransom for all, but not as a conquering military king, but as the lamb who was slain. Our salvation comes from the blood that was shed on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we too are to, to follow our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the great saints that have gone before us like Dr. King. And we are to despise sin, yet not fall prey to sin or apathy ourselves. And then finally, if we are to persevere in faith, we are to do so in the confidence that we have in God, not in ourselves. And we do so because, like the psalmist said, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet, that resounding yet, yet they have not prevailed against me. Why? Because the Lord is righteous, verse 4 says of Psalm 129, and he has cut the cords of wickedness. I love that line. Even though we face adversity, even though we may feel like people are digging furrows into our backs, even though we may deal with horrendous situations, we do not despair. That's the temptation there, to fall into despair and hopelessness. We do not despair. Why? Because God is with us. He is righteous. And ultimately, he has cut the cords of wickedness. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, Paul said. who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ in Jesus on the cross. That was God cutting the cords of wickedness. We still might feel the sting of sin from time to time. We still deal with challenges and adversity and affliction, but the ultimate sting has lost its power. Sin is ultimately impotent to destroy us because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we do not fall prey to sin. We persevere. We, we keep going, knowing that God has cut the cords of wickedness. And so for us, 
as we face our own challenges today, both personally and corporately, as we continue to face this challenge of COVID and are tempted uh, not to persevere, how might God be speaking to you today? Do you recognize any of those temptations in your own life, that temptation to, to move towards fantasy, not live in the difficult situation that we find ourselves in? Are you tempted towards apathy, just giving up? Are you tempted towards violence or sin in that way? And maybe are you tempted to despair, to lose all hope at this point? So I would just invite us to take some time today to take a couple minutes to be quiet before the Lord, to think about how he might be calling us towards honesty, to live in reality, to do the good works that he's calling us to, to stand in the confidence and the trust that we have in him, and to not fall prey to any of these temptations that lay before us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.